This is Reimagining Healthcare, a podcast about innovation in the healthcare industry. It's a show for healthcare business owners, for healthcare professionals, for industry investors, and health tech entrepreneurs. On the show, I talk to health tech and healthcare innovators to uncover how they're reimagining and building a world of seamless digital healthcare experiences and how that fits into people's lives. I'm your host, Yanni Sapanos. Today, I'm speaking with Rowan Brady, a future-focused, for-purpose leader within the disability sector and long-standing CEO of Manburn Enterprises Limited, a non-government disability service organisation and NDIS registered service provider. We talk about the constant and rapidly changing world of disability, its challenges and opportunities, its impact on his board and his team, and how he led a transformative and innovative strategy to embrace the power of health tech and adapt his organisation's culture to become a successful, client-focused and results-oriented service provider. Let's jump in. Well, hey, Rowan, thanks for making the time today. So uh, you're doing some really interesting stuff in the uh, disability sector. So um, I'm really happy to have you on today just to talk through um, what you're doing at the moment. You've been uh, CEO of Manburen for quite some time and involved in the industry for a while. Give us a little bit of background. What's your journey been? I started my professional career as a teacher in chemistry and maths and science and a bit of outdoor ed. Always wanted to be in a role where I felt like I was making a difference to people, that I was... I guess, you know, contributing to society, leaving the world in a better state than I found it and teaching seemed to be the, the thing. I had a passion for teaching and, and I still do. I love um, imparting knowledge and sharing with people uh, what I know and helping them to grow uh, as people. I climbed the career ladder within teaching to a um, deputy principal stage and I, I was starting to, I guess, experience signs of burnout in the role and I'd always promised myself that I would get out of teaching before that happened rather than after. I'd worked with so many teachers counting the terms until retirement. I thought I don't want to be one of them. So I uh, switched sectors across the disability sector. That was more than 17 years ago and that's into this role that I'm in now which is uh, Chief Executive of Mamarin and um, I've been uh, on this journey uh, ever since with, um, I guess, my own professional development in the role, growing in the role and, and also then assisting people with disabilities to live better lives. Yeah, that certainly um, comes through in the time that I've uh, gotten to know you as well. And uh, I really uh, resonate with that idea of leaving the world in a better place. It sounds like a perfect alignment for um, the sector that you're in now. Would you say that sort of underpins uh, the meaning and purpose of um, what you're doing at the moment? Yeah, it really does, Yanni. From the teaching background, I, I always relied on the hope that someday in the future kids students that I had in my classes would remember something that I told them or, or some uh, experience that I'd shared with them or whatever and it would make a positive difference but it was always so disconnected uh, and intangible the role that I'm in, in now is much more direct decisions that I make today I can see the outcomes dare I say for better or worse hopefully in most cases for better really within you know, the next day uh, I can see people's lives changing uh, and I really enjoy that connectedness between my efforts and things getting better. I, I like that flow. There's been a, a lot of need to innovate in the space in recent years, particularly with um, big transformative change through a scheme like the NDIS. What's that been like? Because you've seen prior to that 
during and where we're at at the moment. What's what's that experience been like? Mm. In fact, uh, my experience of the disability sector has felt like a constant state of change ever since I came into the sector and probably predating it. Uh, without boring your listeners with an enormous amount of you know getting down among the weeds detail, when I started in 2002, the state government had just launched what they called the State Disability Action Plan, uh, which was meant to be a 10-year plan. And uh, there's been a number of these large policy announcements regularly ever since. And the experience of the sector is that we often don't even get time to bed down the previous set of changes that have been announced and then a new set is foisted on us. So way back when in the early 2000s, Mambrin really needed to reinvent itself in order to stay relevant. I can say this now because most of my colleagues from that era are long gone, but I inherited an organisation where it had the attitude that uh, we'll be okay, uh, the government wouldn't see services like ours close, uh, other attitudes like um, you know the world owes us a living because we do good. And we really had to revolutionise that change, that attitude and, and the culture of the organisation to say, uh, in order to be uh, sustainable into the future, we need to be a high quality service. We need to focus on the customer at the centre and meeting the needs and wants and goals of those customers run like a business. Uh, I often say the only difference between a not-for-profit and a for-profit is that in the not-for-profit, the surplus that's generated is not distributed to shareholders in every other sense. Uh, we have to run like a business. We have to make and stick to budgets. We have to run our human resources um, efficiently and effectively. And, and uh, we have to be proactive in our decision making, uh, smart about the intel that we're gathering, et cetera, et cetera. It kind of reminds me of how important it is to really understand that where, you know, healthcare is the business of healthcare. And whether there's a sensitivity to the word business or not, it doesn't take away from the fact that there is a tax scheme around us. There are GST compliance activities that we need to go through. There's payroll. There's um, the compliance that's needed, you know, the red tape, so to speak, of actually uh, doing that. And if you're going to be sustainable, it also includes the idea that you need to be an organisation that's financially sustainable and has governance and operates in a way that um, keeps it all together and ultimately leads to that service delivery. Is that the type of thing that you're referring to there as well in terms of the comparisons? Yeah, absolutely. So, and I deliberately say we because although I've been one part of the, the solution, it's been a, a really a team effort from across the organisation to, to make the changes that were necessary. There's no way I could have done it on my own. But we're focused on, uh, as you say, everything from our governance, both from our strategic approach of our board and the compliance approach. I have to say, um, similar to for-profits, there's enough precedent, both generally uh, at law and that Mamron's experienced, that the regulators like ASIC, like WorkSafe, etc., they don't have any different views to how we need to perform to the commercial organisation down the road. So we have to have all of those OHS systems in place and the early warning uh, signs and et cetera, et cetera. So to answer actually part of the question about the, the most recent reforms, I think all of that work that we've done over the last decade to 15 years has really put us in a great position to be able to embrace what is a massive disruption, a revolutionary change in the National Disability Insurance Scheme, whereas not all, but some other organisations really have been running around, you know, henny penny, the sky's falling in. And I'm not saying that it's not without its challenges, it definitely is, but we're constantly trying to remind ourselves of the long-term view. 
what will we be sitting here saying about this in five years time and we keep reminding each other that in five years time we're going to be saying this is a great scheme it's great for people with disabilities for the organizations that have dare i say survived and have come out the other side they will be the stronger for it or they will be the strongest uh, in in the sector uh, and they'll be providing great services uh, and the system i believe will be working really well so that's what's kept us focused but that doesn't diminish the size of the change that we've had to grapple with in terms of um the national disability insurance scheme and and uh changes to business rules uh, to the uh, mode of service delivery and the expectations of customers, it's changed from a customer who stereotypically would have been grateful for any services that they could get in the sense that anything was better than nothing because we were operating in a, um, a ration model where there wasn't enough to go around for everybody to an entitlement scheme where if the person is deemed eligible for the National Disability Insurance Scheme, the money is guaranteed for their package. We can debate about whether the package itself is big enough in any individual case, but as a general principle, the money is available to them and they have complete autonomy over the buying power. They can spend it at Mambrin, they can spend it at X or Y or Z down the road. And that means that um, the power is in the hands of the consumer much more than ever was the case before. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a, that's a really good piece of advice, I think, for any healthcare provider that is currently dealing with um, people contacting them about providing them support services uh, because they are self-managed or potentially um, working under a plan, for example. Inevitably, if you do take that uh, longer term view, then, you know, there's that old saying, the longest journey starts with the first step. So if you're not taking that first step today, then when? And if it's too late down the road, then your health provider organisation hasn't changed fast enough and uh, other organisations are going through the pain of change and dealing with the impact of the change and actually resolving those change impacts and um, operating in the new way. That sounds to me like it also needs a big commitment from your team. What have you found through that transformation uh, as a leader and, and innovating within the space? What's that been like in bringing the team along? What have, what have you gone through? Sometimes uh, I glibly describe my role as hiring great people, uh, encouraging them to do great things, forming the wherewithal for them to do it and then getting the hell out of the way and letting them do it. Uh, more seriously though, we realized uh, quite early on that uh, the change that was coming with the NDIS was so massive that uh, it's a little bit like, you know, how does a computer work? I think I read uh, something the other day that computers are now so complex that there's no one person can actually understand every aspect of inside that black box. I mean, a human understands each bit of it, but not necessarily the same human, all of it. And the NDIS feels a little bit like that. It is such a complex beast to wrestle to the ground that no one person can do it. So quite early on, we, we had to share the load. Uh, we've got a, um, a groups of people who take the responsibility for making sure that we stay across the intelligence gathering. We've got you know, the people who are more business-minded, focusing on the business rules and the billing and the cash flows and, and that sort of thing. We've got uh, an NDIS team who are customer-focused, who are doing their best to make sure that, firstly, that the plan that a person gets is adequate to their needs. And then secondly, that the purchases that that person is making through that plan are the best that they can 
make in the sense of creating the best outcomes for them. Uh, and I have to say that uh, here's that word um, business. You said sometimes it's a bit of a dirty word uh, in the not-for-profit sector, but from a business perspective, sometimes that means us saying no. So that's conversations that we've had to have internally uh, as a team and support each other to say, if we try and be all things to all people under the NDIS, we're actually not going to do anyone a great service will provide a poor outcome for some people. So quite early, we have to provide that filter and we have to say to the potential customer walking through the door, uh, look, uh, we understand that you've got particular needs that you'd like met under your uh, under your NDIS plan, but unfortunately, we're not set up well enough to do a great job meeting those services, so we, we would support you to, to go somewhere else. And that's been a hard conversation for the team to have to say no to people. I definitely can relate to how, uh, as you're growing, there is a, a strong desire to try and do as much as possible for your customer. Reaching that point is a real sign of maturity as a business and being able to understand where you excel. What are the core things that you do better than most? What are you valued for uh, by your customer? I think there's a lot of value in being able to say no to a customer because there's information in that. It's basically you can get that part of it elsewhere better than we could possibly do it for you. And I think from a customer's uh, viewpoint, that should be seen as a real positive. It instills trust and uh, commitment to the relationship that's developing because you're being served and you're being provided with advice, essentially, that um, is not self-interested. The self-interest would be, let's try and do that for you as well. The right thing by the customer, to your uh, comment earlier about being client-centric, is to tell them what you're good at and what you're not so good at and to point them in the direction of somebody who does that well. A corollary of that is the very interesting discussions that we have internally around what are our core capabilities, what are our yeah. strengths, what makes us different from the disability service down the road. And uh, we have those conversations on a regular basis. I mean, the marketers talk about USP, your, your unique selling proposition. We try to keep it as jargon-free a zone as possible, but you know what, what is it that sets us apart? Uh, and then that helps to inform our thinking in terms of what we do say to that potential customer. And obviously then going back to the business side of things, it helps to inform our, our marketing effort as well in terms of putting the message out there about uh, why people should choose us. With the concept of a USP, um, do you want to expand on that a little bit and just explain that a little bit more for people? Well, within the context of the uh, National Disability Insurance Scheme, it's funded through uh, what's called a price guide. And there are literally hundreds of lines of different prices that's determined by time of day, weekday, Monday to Friday, compared to you know Saturday night out of hours will be different prices, but then also different support types, uh, different service offerings, everything from therapy, accommodation, uh, finding and keeping a job, there's a there's a massive uh, range of services that can be purchased under the NDIS. Mambrin provides actually a very narrow band of those services, typically uh, to people with significant need, with, with profound disability, complex needs and needs that are not generally well met in the mainstream health services or mainstream transport services or whatever the example might be. So the temptation when the NDIS came along and, you know, from a business point of view, you see potential market of $22 billion and 460,000 customers is to say, you know, how can I get a decent share of that, uh, you know, even 
5% market share is already measuring in, in the billions of dollars. Like that's very significant money. Uh, but what it would mean in order to achieve scale like that would be to be saying yes to thousands of people where you claim that you meet their criteria yes, and then set about delivering those services after you've said yes to them. From our point of view, we decided quite early on that we weren't interested in a race to the bottom on price and uh, we wanted to be focused on being a quality organisation. One of the metaphors that our uh, leadership team came up with was um, Etihad Airlines versus Qantas versus Jetstar and they all use the same airports, airport control towers, the same quality avgas in their tanks and the same qualifications, etc. of pilots, but it's the offering below that uh, that varies and that's uh, the approach that, that we choose to take. So our, our USP then comes down to what is it that we do that can't be met by the service provider down the road? You know, if you imagine a series of shop fronts down the, down the high street, uh, you know, to go next door and ask the person next door. For us, what it is about is the customer centricity and the notion of the primacy of the customer the dedication and passion of the staff to that and the relationships that we therefore build. So to illustrate with a, a, a simple example, if a person came to us and said, I just need two hours of service a day. I don't care who does it. They just need to come into my house, lift me out of bed, shower me, get me in my clothes and get me off to work. We would probably decline that kind of work because from our point of view, there's no real opportunity to value add to that customer. There's any number of those kinds of uh, services out there. Uh, in fact, if you look on eBay, you find registered disability service providers advertising their services at that kind of, um, dare I say, sausage machine work where it's just get in there, get the job done, get out without any relationship formed between the staff member and the client. We much prefer a situation where we can develop a whole gamut of services that wrap around a person and uh, that we help them to really improve and develop and grow as an individual and, and to achieve their potential really so that the investment uh, in them through the, the package that they're receiving is in enabling them to do things that weren't previously perceived to be possible. In some cases, I have to say, it's uh, hold your own toothbrush and clean your own teeth. You know, to most of us, that seems pretty trivial. But for a person who's an adult who's never been able to do that before, that can be a massive achievement. And anything through to uh, finding and keeping a job, driving a forklift, getting your driver's license, living independently, you know, and everything in between. That is uh, something that really needs to be iterated on over time, I'd imagine that um, as you've uh, developed that sense of uh, what that unique selling point is for, for Mamburin. You've got your principles, you've got your values, um, you're recruiting on that basis, you're, you're building a team on that basis. How much iteration is involved to reach, you know, these kinds of uh, processes that work uh, where you've got human beings that you need to coordinate, you've got other resources in, yeah, as you mentioned earlier, buses or rooms or sites and what have you. How much uh, effort has gone into making that all work seamlessly and on cue? That side of things is massive and we probably wouldn't be here today 
dare I say, at all, if we hadn't focused on developing a system to be able to do that more efficiently and more effectively. In uh, 2010, we went live with a, a software system that we developed ourselves, and that really has been a game changer for us in terms of the things that you mentioned, rostering staff, rostering resources, linking staff to clients, billing the National Disability Insurance Agency, uh, etc. We focused our efforts on that um, back from the middle 2000s internally when uh, I realized that there was no way that I could possibly afford any of the off-the-shelf products like SAP or Oracle or, or any of those. So we set about building it ourselves and, um, and that really has been a massive game changer for us. Absolutely. And that, um, that's a real cornerstone aspect of quality and safeguarding framework and uh, the uh, code of practice. It's to be able to have an information management system that is contemporaneous. Uh, and by contemporaneous, I mean added to or data entered in real time on a day-to-day basis in line with the services that are being delivered. So you've been at the forefront of innovation in dealing with the transformation that's needed at a system level to be able to coordinate the culture that's needed within your organisation, the, the, the people to be able to provide the services as and where required to um, conform to a efficient and effective way of actually delivering the services through introducing the software that you were developing at that point in time. The software itself has also helped us to meet the obligations, for example, under the National Disability Insurance Scheme of demonstrating outcomes for people. So you talked a minute ago about the iterative process of developing a person's support plan and then setting about delivering those services. Our experience is uh, for most people, I guess it's just the nature of human beings that you know we, we're not static from one day to the next, let alone one month to the next or one year to the next. We, we keep growing and changing and our goals change. So the system that we developed uh, allows the goals that a person wants to set for themselves at any given moment in time to be recorded. And then we track progress towards those goals on a daily basis. Uh, as one goal uh, is achieved, we can close it down and, and move on to the next one. The data's never lost. It's always there if we want to come back and visit it. A person might say, I know I said last year that I was interested in X, but I've lost interest in that. I'm now interested in Y. And we can adapt very quickly and, and change those goals. So what it does is it creates the um, the evidence base to be able to demonstrate that uh, to the National Disability Insurance Agency, the funder, uh, that the NDIS package is being used effectively. Absolutely. And I'd imagine that uh, you've had success in actually uh, renegotiating uh, additional requirements and resources needed for a, for a participant. Has that mm. been the case? It's actually been a shift to the positive for us. And I mentioned earlier about, you know, some organisations could only see the doom and gloom that it was going to mean for their business. We sat back and said, what are the opportunities here that the NDIS presents? Under the old model, under the state-funded DHHS model, uh, you got a fixed amount of money and you're expected to just make that work. If one person had higher support needs, uh, you're expected to somehow cobble the whole uh, mix together to make sure that their needs were met, but somebody else's uh, might end up in dollar terms with a little bit less than what they're entitled to. If you went to the department and said, this person has uh, significant needs over and above what your funding is for, typically the answer would be, oh, that's related to their disability, that's included in the package. Under the NDIS, as I mentioned earlier, with these hundreds, if not thousands of price lines, 
we realized that there was an opportunity to have the additional supports that we provided, which effectively was over-servicing the customer to use jargon or, in fact, waste if you look at it from a pure business perspective, but at a human level was an absolute need for the person. Simple example would be, as a general rule, they're comfortable in a group setting, uh, except when they need help in the bathroom, and then it's two staff members are needed with that one person in the bathroom. We built a module into our system which captured those additional support needs and then we were able to use that as evidence when the person went along to their uh, planning meeting with the agency and we're seeing consistently people coming back with higher funding than they previously received uh, under the old system because the evidence is there that those needs are genuinely there in terms of, of uh, specific support needs during the day. Does that go towards the uh, evidence-based uh, information gathering and intelligence that you're referring to earlier? Absolutely. If you went to the agency and you said, uh, without evidence, this person's funding is inadequate, you wouldn't get a hearing. But if you go to the agency, to be technically correct, the person needs to go to the agency, but you may well be there alongside them supporting them. Uh, but if the person says, my funding is inadequate, and here's the data that's come from Mambrin's uh, information gathering system over the last six months that shows that on average I have support in the bathroom for one and a half hours a day for two staff, then it's a very simple calculation to work out how much the, the package uh, needs to be increased by in order to meet that need. Yeah, so that's, that's a really interesting augmentation, I guess, of the meaning of evidence-based care. On the one hand, the, um, uh, the system allows you to track goals and to engage the participant to be able to update and feedback into progress uh, towards the goals and to be able to feedback not just the, for lack of a better term, clinical services, but let's say non-clinical service, let's say the experience that the person is having. And that would come in, to my mind anyway, that would be the um, uh, probably the go-to association that I would have with evidence-based healthcare. You're describing something that's where payers are involved. How do we actually demonstrate the adequacy of the resources that have been at the planning stage thought to be adequate, but now in reality, we're discovering that um, there's uh, genuine reasons for why things need to change. And that's a different form of evidence and it's a different way of using evidence to be able to help a person achieve their goals. Yeah, another example and thinking about your listeners in, in the, the healthcare space, there may be uh, medical practitioners who have a person with a disability who present to them with a, a set of behaviours, for example, which are, are considered uh, deleterious to either themselves or others. And the information that that medical practitioner can provide based on their expertise, based on their experience of what's necessary in order to support that person to minimise those behaviours because it's in the person's best interest. No one wants to behave where it's, it could possibly cause injury to myself or others. They're not choosing to do that. It's happening for a reason. And the medical practitioner that has the person presenting to them in that case, uh, if they're able to, to support the changes that are needed with evidence, then that person is much more likely to get that funding in their plan. Absolutely. So that's been a real insight for me, uh, actually, Ron, just in expanding the concept of evidence-based uh, healthcare. Where's the dependency on the, I guess, the relationship between health tech, such as the system that you're describing, and culture within your organisation? How important is it for those two things to work together? Do they need to work together? 
What's been your experience and where do you see that going? It's a great question. We've put a lot of effort into ensuring that each of our staff members understands the values that we uh, hold dear, our non-negotiables, so to speak. And you mentioned recruiting earlier. We've actively recruited through including psychometric testing for some years now. And um, I didn't invent this line, but I, I really like it. It's um, higher for attitude and trained for skills. And, and we've really taken that approach because we want people who really engage with our vision and our mission are able to articulate our values and really, in, at least in a professional sense, are, are willing to live and breathe them. And that goes hand in hand with ensuring that we maximize the number of dollars that we receive from government to provide services to people with disabilities, maximizing the amount that flows through to directly providing services. So that means identifying uh, waste wherever it exists and, and helping us to minimize it. And part of that is around having a system or, or multiple systems possibly in place uh, that tracks our efficiency and our effectiveness uh, and then helps us to identify where that can be improved further. Um, that's not to say that uh, every staff member loves and relishes uh, the opportunity to sit down at the end of the day and do their, uh, in rabbit's ears, paperwork. Um, it's the bane of every professional worker anywhere in the country that has to actually sit down and do this, but the reality is that it has to be done. One of the things that we, we did in this space was traditionally staff would have an hour at the end of the day to do their, in inverted commas, paperwork. I do inverted commas because like all of us, the vast majority now is computer-based, uh, but we still refer to paperwork time. What we did was we turned that into a, um, a flexible hour and we said to staff, we don't really mind if you want to split as soon as your face-to-face -face duties are done, if you want to get off and pick up the kids or go and get your hair done or get to the bank or whatever it is, as long as that paperwork gets done within a reasonable time frame, that's okay with us. And with a cloud-based system, the staff members are able to log on and do their paperwork at any time, you know, with their laptop sitting on their knee in front of MasterChef or whatever the example might be. So uh, I get, for example, incident reports of a particular uh, status come directly to me and I see my computer going off at, you know, 11.30, 12 o'clock at night, if that's what the staff member has chosen to do because they wanted to take their flexi hour and leave at the end of the day. And we've found that that's been an absolute boon for a positive culture in the workplace. And that really embraces the whole anywhere, anytime value proposition of cloud uh, systems uh, where the, the user or the staff member that you're describing is able to choose that time and place you know, to be able to deal with some of the admin or the paperwork as you described it. How important is it to invest in professional development or training through something like the quality and safeguarding framework and, um, and where you're at and where you see it going with Manburen? I was asked by my board at our most recent board meeting why I had added quality and safeguarding commission to our risk register. Uh, and the board, as you would expect, only sees the highest, you know, half a dozen risks that I've identified. Um, the vast majority are, are managed and well mitigated and the board need to know that there's a system in place, but they don't need to worry about the detail. And my answer was, if you don't meet the obligations of the Quality and Safeguarding Commission, you don't get accredited or verified and you cannot then continue to provide services under the NDIS. And in our case, 
about 70% of our income would evaporate overnight. Sounds uh, like a bit of a risk. <laughs> yeah. So it's in, in very simple terms, it, it's a risk because you have to play nicely, so to speak, with the Quality and Safeguarding Commission or you don't get to play at all. It's as simple as that. Below that, though, there's a whole series of risks, especially in this transition period. There are risks in not gathering the right um, information, uh, in uh, not responding in a timely manner, in doing the wrong things. All of those things are going to cause problems for you either in the short or or the longer term. So in terms of uh, adding resources into it, For an organisation our size, I've got one person completely dedicated to just the transition to the quality and safeguarding framework, and then any number of other managers would be dedicating some part of their working week to supporting that person to, to get up and running. Because in different states, the magnitude of the change will be different, but no one state, there won't be any change, if I can put it like that. Everyone is grappling with a new way of reporting and so on. So I guess the ultimate answer to that is to find ways of doing that as efficiently as possible, making sure that the um, requisite number of boxes are ticked uh, in order to make sure that, like I said, the funding keeps flowing. Absolutely. So one of your um, personal values is being future-focused and, uh, you know, that's something that um, in the time that I've known you comes through time and time and again. The idea of being able to deal with these change. So I think, you know, we've established that we're in a state of change. There's just constant change happening uh, in the uh, in the disability sector as well as healthcare broadly. And um, business more broadly as well. And business as well, absolutely. And, and so accepting that, I guess, the possibilities of uh, what is within change and how we respond to it. Where do you see that transformation happening in the context of healthcare and I guess, models of healthcare? Technology is always going to be front and centre. I think of any change that we're dealing with, I imagine forever, but at least for the foreseeable future, it's either going to be causing the change to happen to us so that there's some new technology out there that has created a new competitor or a new competitive environment and we need to respond to that, or it's presenting an opportunity to us to use that technology to help us to do things um, better and smarter and faster and more efficiently. Uh, If I can tell you a very simple story, 15 years ago probably I was meeting with my management team and I was talking about the need to innovate and uh, one of my managers who was, I guess you would say, very connected by the heart um, to the the reality of what we do, spoke up with with exasperation and she said, um, Rowan, ultimately we wipe bums how can you innovate wiping bums? Uh, And at the time, I didn't really know the answer, but as a team, we kind of explored, maybe, you know, you get a bid A or maybe you do this or maybe you do that. Fast forward to whatever it is, 15 years later, and only in recent times, I've been uh, reading about toilets that are now available. And this is not uh, futuristic. This is these things exist now that can diagnose, um, I've forgotten the number, but never make up a good story with the truth. It's something like 15 or 20 common ailments based entirely on what you put in that toilet. So uh, I mentioned earlier that we deal with people at the the profound disability end of the spectrum. They're often non-verbal. They're not able to tell us that they've got an ache or a pain. 
I talked earlier about behaviors. They often will communicate to us that they've got an ache or a pain through a negative behavior. They'll, they'll lash out. If you've got a really bad toothache and you can't communicate to somebody you've got a toothache, you're probably going to hit them to try and get their attention. You know, So if we were able to have these toilets installed where we provide our services, we're now innovating wiping bums because that staff member can get a printout and say, uh, you know, gosh, your sugar levels are a bit high. We'd better, you know, ring Dr. Josephine about that and find out what we're going to do about that, you know. And I, I just think that that's massive. And I could give you any number of stories uh, around how technology is going to revolutionise the world uh, for people with disability. If you've got time, just, just one other quick story. Imagine the person uh, with a profound disability who has always relied on other human beings for basically all of their basic needs sitting on the couch, gets up, walks out the front door, the TV turns off, the lights turn off because they've left the house, the door locks behind them, the car pulls up the front because their smartphone in their pocket has told them that they want to go somewhere, they climb in the car, it takes them to the supermarket, the Amazon supermarket, they take their milk and their bread and their cheese and their yogurt off the shelf and they walk straight out because their app has communicated with the cash register with the items taken. The car knows that they're ready to go, so it pulls up out the front. It's pre-programmed to take them home. Ten minutes before they get home, the car's alerted the house to turn the heating on and the lights on and drop the lock on the front door. They walk in. The TV's on their favorite channel. They rip the top off their yogurt and start eating. And then, by the way, every step of that technology exists today. That could all be done right now, putting aside regulations about driverless cars and so on. All the technology exists. That's a person who only a year ago would have had at least one, if not two or three other humans needed in order to deliver that service, can do all of that completely independently. I just think that's absolutely awesome. Yeah, that is an inspiring vision. And it's uh, it really is about what kind of attitude we have towards embracing uh, ideas and, and technologies. To me, it seems as though it is there's a um, aspect of attitude and commitment to that idea, which is why I really like the idea that you espouse about the power of being future focused and considering the options that are available, what are at, at our disposal. And we've got a concept uh, internally, which is about um, if we are manually doing something over and over and over again, um, we're tracking that. And when that gets to the top of the list, we want to do something about it. We want to actually automate it. Uh, we want to find a way to get technology to do it for us so that we can actually use the creative energy of the human beings to tackle the things that technology can't, so to speak. And um, I'll share a story with you. Back uh, in my grade eight social science class, uh, my former teacher, Mr. Cole, once said to me that um, we should all be afraid of technology because it was going to put people out of jobs. And uh, what I found over the years, uh, and I'm a massive fan of technology, particularly digital healthcare enabling technologies, is that it um, it just restructures people, you know, from moving away from those uh, mundane, repetitive manual tasks and moves us into a different type of um, use of our brains and our energy and our um, sense of alignment with the type of meaning or purpose that drives us on a day-to-day basis. And so it's not its not really a um, something to be feared. It's, it's actually going to make everybody's life easier if it's committed to. Uh, but the downside is that um, technologies that are implemented that aren't fully embraced, they become burdens as well, you know, where uh, organisations subscribe to applications. It's so easy to do that these days or um, purchase technology, but you don't get the actual cultural change 
that embraces all the productivity gains or the innovation potential within those products. This is sort of a dual question, but I like to ask, um, how do you see healthcare being reimagined? What do you think the potential or the future is for uh, the NDIS and running a successful disability service provider? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think the opportunities there are, are, are massive. Uh, there's just so much upside from the NDIS point of view to the, to healthcare, we're moving from a ration system to an entitlement-based system. So what, what that will mean or what it really means now, it's, it's, it's not in the future, for the, uh, the health practitioner, they'll have people with support needs coming through the door with dollars attached to meeting those support needs. Whereas in the past, uh, it was always such a merry-go-round. Health practitioners wanted to help and, and they were desperately trying to help. But if ultimately, if there wasn't somebody willing to help them turn on the electric light and pay their staff and run their photocopiers, they would have to say no to those clients. Whereas I mentioned before, $22 billion. Now, that won't all be um, in the form of therapy services and so on, but a, a significant proportion will be. So there's a massive market opportunity there. From the point of view of the person with a disability accessing the healthcare, what I'd like to really see is the boundaries blurring a lot between what's classified as disability and what's classified as healthcare. I'm certainly not suggesting that disability should be treated as such like a health condition. Uh, but often, I mentioned before, you know, our friend with, with the toothache and can't tell us about it. Often people with disabilities experience underlying challenges to having good health. Um, and the healthcare system, uh, for a whole raft of reasons, is poorly set up to meet their, their needs. So I think with the resources that are available through the NDIS, with the possibilities of health tech that we've talked about playing an important role as an aid to communication and diagnosis and treatment, rehabilitation, access to broader supports, etc., and then the um, person with a disability being approached as a, a complete entity, a, as a, a holistic individual, as opposed to just being defined either just by their disability or just by their toothache. I think those that the potential for that, the synergies there are, are just limitless. Does that also go towards the need for service providers to figure out how to cooperate with each other as well in order to be part of that holistic service model? So whether it's health, non-health, do you see that as being part of this um, transformation? That's certainly going to be in the best interests of the, of the customer if we go back to our original comments around the customer at the centre. And I guess related to what I was saying before about uh, identifying what your USP is, what your offering is going to be. If you're working on the assumption that you're not going to try and be all things to all people, then the inevitable consequence of that is that there's going to be some gaps in the services that you can provide. If you're in a position to be able to say to uh, the person sitting in front of you, look, I can help you with these particular needs. I'm not very good at doing those over there, but gosh, I know someone who is, and I'm happy to highly recommend them to you. And uh, as a service to you, with your permission, I'll transfer all of my notes over to that person. So when you go in there, you won't have to tell your whole story again, or actually better still, Yanni, they're, they're using the same system. So with permissions, they could log on and see the same files that in the cloud, that would even be better again. And then the person can then go to the next uh, service provider, not have to tell their whole story again, get that need met and so on. And if there's a sense that people are working together in their best interests, then I actually think that's going to end up better for everybody. 
I think that's definitely the right uh, mindset around uh, cooperation and really delivering a healthcare system um, as opposed to a fragment of a healthcare system, you know, so to speak, where that cooperation is really possible. And I noted in uh, Australia's national digital health strategy, one of the biggest issues for uh, consumers uh, in and around the healthcare was having that portability of uh, healthcare information and making it more seamless to be able to move through different points of healthcare and um, and not have to go through the whole process again. So I think that's really a, a poignant idea that um, we definitely could do better with from a from a health tech standpoint. That's for sure. Ron, thank you so much. That's been um, that's been a great conversation, and I really appreciate you taking the time and, and uh, providing us with your lived experience and uh, some of your insights around the future of uh, disability. So thank you very much for your time today. You're most welcome. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced in collaboration with Health Tech X, where we are working toward a world of integrated digital health empowerment for all people. If you'd like more info on how to get involved, head over to the website, healthtechx.com.au. Or if you have any feedback about the show, you can reach out to me directly on LinkedIn, Instagram, or email by following the links in this episode's show notes. And finally, don't forget to subscribe to Reimagining Healthcare in your podcast app. And if you like what you heard, leave us a five-star review. It really helps other people find the show. I'm your host, Yanni Sopanos, and I'll speak to you in our next episode.